Welcome to Kingdom Perspective Broadcast, the teaching ministry of Dr. David Ogaga. For more information, please call 234-803-481-0869 or for free audio downloads, kindly visit www.davidogaga.org. We want to deal with a very specific subject that... Um directly connected to the questions we'll be answering in relation to Revelation chapter 10, reading from verse 1 to 3. The question has to do with the issue of First Thessalonians chapter 4, reading from 13 through 18. The house today with the cloud. We've done extensive work on that. So for those of us watching for the first time on the telecast, I think it's important you try to get those previous CDs or messages so that you can follow up properly. Because the basic thing we're going to be teaching tonight is the issue of the rapture as it relates to the first Thessalonians. So many questions are coming, so I want to attempt to look into this. So first of all, let's read our main text, which has to do with Revelation 10, uh, from verse number 1. Um, it talks about, And I saw another mighty angel came down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as his well, the sun, and his feet was as pillars of fire. And the verse 2 says, and he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot on the earth. And then verse 3, he said, and cried with a loud voice, as when the lion roared, and when he had cried, seven thunders under the voices. And verse 4, we can look at verse 4, and when the seven thunders altered the voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, set up those things which the seven thunders halted, and write them not. So we can stop there. And then, uh, we're just moving. Okay. Uh, what I'm going to look at now, like I said, has to do with this, um, the issue of the rapture as it came out of this based on First Thessalonians that we're dealing with the previous time. Uh, first of all, let me say this. If you look at the book of Amos reading from the New King James Version, the book of Amos chapter 2 verse 4, the Bible says, reading from the New Kingdoms, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not turn away his punishment, because they have despised the law of the Lord, and have, kept, have not kept his commandments, their lies lead them astray. Lies which your fathers followed. And that's a strong word. Lies which your fathers followed. That means there are some lies which fathers have kind of laid down and we are following unconsciously. Because we don't seem to have a clear understanding of what 
they even believed. Amen. Now, if you look at the uh, Proverbs 18 verse 17, I would like us to read this from the Good News Translation. Proverbs 18 17, Good News. And it says, The first person to speak in court always seems right until his opponent begins to question him. That's an interesting thing. The first person to speak in court seems right until the opponent begins to question him. And you find out a point of questioning truth will begin to unveil and end up discovering the first matter spoke that seems right was telling lies. Is that okay? <laughs> you understand what I'm saying here? I want you to get it. So it simply tells us something that when most times we don't question what we believe because the first person has spoken and since we don't question, we always believe also that it's right. Is that okay? Uh, but if we find somebody that can question some of the things we do believe, we end up discovering that they are not as accurate as the saints. And that is the journey we are going to enter into tonight. Praise the living God. Now there is something very important that I also want you to see. When you begin to look at the theory of the rapture, you find that we have a lot of confusion among the believers of this doctrine. So why is this so? Why are people confused? Among those who believe in the rapture, all of us who seem to believe in the rapture, when we put it that way, we are divided. We don't seem to have a common ground as to what we truly believe. And that itself is very strange. But why is it so? Well, it is simply because this doctrine do not similarly have a foundation in scriptures. Hallelujah. Now, those who hold, we have several segments of beliefs in this. Uh, we have those who have the view of what is called dispensational interpretation of prophecy that's to do with the rapture now that teach that the second coming of Christ will be in two stages the first stage which is the rapture is that which Christ is coming for the saints and then we use 1 Thessalonians 4 13 to 17 to back up that teaching so it's called coming for the saints that's the first aspect of the dispensation and teaching. And then we are made to understand that we believe that Christ does not appear visibly to those on the earth, but only comes in the air to resurrect the true saints who have died. Change them into living saints, according to 1 Corinthians 15, talking about in the twinkling of an eye. Uh, 23, 51 to 53, then look at Philippians 3, verse 20 to 21. So we use it to back up that when Jesus comes, it's not going to come the first coming, uh, which is more or less what they call, they call the second coming, but that which is called the rapture. He will get to the ground, and then he'll lift up the saint from the cemetery, 
changes them into glorified bodies. That's the first thing. So it's called the catch away to meet the Lord in the air. Then again, we said after this, the revelation, which is what he called the second coming of the Lord with his saints. Again, now, get the picture. The first coming is he comes, he doesn't get to the earth. He takes away the saints, and then he comes a second time with the saints. Is that okay? Right. Then we, we teach that the interval between these two events is generally guided as Daniel's 70th week. If you look at the Daniel 70th week teaching, this way not fitting. So, 70th week of Daniel, we believe or we taught that it is between the first coming and the second coming. But the first coming is to take the saints and transform them into glorified bodies. That the second coming is to come with the saints. Now, the interval between the first and the second coming is what referred to as the seventy week of Daniel. Is that all right? Praise God. Now we find that during this time, according to this teaching, uh, we have the Antichrist who will make a seven-year covenant with the Jews in which he will allow them to offer sacrifices in a rebuilt temple at Jerusalem. But after three and a half years, according to this teaching, he will break his covenant and place an idol, which is called the abomination of desolation, in the holy place in the temple. Now the Jews will refuse to bow, and a great persecution will result. And this we call, according to this teaching, Jacob's trouble, which is otherwise called the great tribulation. Is that okay? Okay. Then again, finally we have, that at the close of the tribulation period, the end of the age, Christ will return in power and great glory. Now this is the whole frame work of this teaching of this doctrine called the rapture. Now those who believe the rapture will take place before the tribulation are called pre-tribulation rapturists. Pre-tribulation rapturists. In other words, the rapture will come before the tribulation. While those who believe the rapture will take place after the tribulation are called post-tribulation rapturists. So now you find that we have two groups there. The pre-tribulation, the pro-tribulation. For those of us watching by telecast, I don't know which group you belong to. Is it pro or pre? It's an issue we need to resolve. That's why I say there's a lot of confusion for those of us who want to believe or have come to believe in this. But let's not forget the thing we just said in Proverbs chapter 18 verse 17 from the Good News Translation. The first man to speak in court seems always right until he's questioned by the opponent and we'll find that the things he has summarily been believing is not true. So here we'll find that we have two categories of people, the pre-tribulation rapturists and the pro-tribulation rapturists. But I don't know which group you truly belong to. That again I'll leave for you to answer. So again we'll find that this is a theory that I've kept the Christian world on their tiptoe, if I may use the word. It is the only thing that is what I call the hope of so many believers. The hope of so many believers. This is the only hope. And anytime you want to touch it, you're touching a sacred cow. Is that okay? All right. 
But let's find out a few things based on what we just said. Uh, it's very important. We have to observe this. First of all, there is no scripture that says Jesus is coming for the saints. You can find it in the Bible. No scripture whatever. What is happening in 1 Thessalonians 4, like I said, from 13 to 17 and 18, which we quote, we just said Jesus is coming for the saints. But there is no scripture you can find that says Jesus is coming for the saints. We are looted out because we want to put it in the fact that Jesus will come and take the saint up into the air and then he come back to them again and come back with them again. So he's coming for, in other words, to be able to agree with the fourth theory that the saint will be lifted up to meet the Lord in the air. And for those of us following this study, you understand what it means to meet in the air. Am I correct? Or what it means to meet in the first place. Remember that? To meet actually means to do what? To welcome. Okay. So there's no scripture that says Jesus is coming for the saints. What you find in scripture is Jesus is coming in the saints or with the saints. And you see that in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 10. In the saints. And then with the saints. Jude verse 14. He's coming in the saints and with the saints. No scripture ever says Jesus is coming for the saints. That is not true. That is teaching something that is not in the scriptures. And we need to understand that. Praise the living God. And that is that makes it very, very dangerous. Because we put in things in scripture that are not there. There is no scripture, I want to repeat, that says Jesus is coming for the saints. What you find is coming with the saints or in the saints. Or to be glorified in the saints. Praise the living God. Alright, then when we talk about the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place spoken of by Daniel, like you find in Daniel chapter 12 verse 11, Matthew 24 verse 15, Luke 21 verse 20, this was actually prophetic of God bringing an end to the daily sacrifices that were up in the temple. Praise the Lord. It was... Actually dealing with the Roman soldiers that were going to come into Jerusalem. You can look at Luke 20, 21, 20. The Roman soldiers that were coming into Jerusalem to destroy the temple, which were actually bring an end to the daily sacrifices. Now for the Roman soldiers who were not. Now verse 20 of Luke 21 says, And when you see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. And that's the desolation that Daniel spoke about in Daniel 12, 11, That he called abomination of desolation. It has to do with the Roman armies that stepped into the temple, which is sacrilegious, in quotes. Because these were heathens. Remember, the most holy place is already high priest that is expected to go there. Right? Even the men of Israel, the children of Israel were not allowed to go there. It was meant for the high priest. But now here is strangers they have to do with the Roman soldiers stepping into that place when the temple was destroyed. 
And that is what Daniel spoke about. So it's not talking about some people going to offer pigs on the temple and call it abomination of desolation, like we've been told. That is not true. That is not what the Bible says. Praise the living God. Are we together? Okay. So we find out the Roman armies came into this place, to the temple of worship, and then they ended up all of those rituals, destroyed everything. And all of this thing happened in AD 70. Remember the story according to Josephus. They have to start digging up all the foundation of the temple because they thought there was so much gold. Because when they got to the most holy place, there was gold. Remember the ark was made of gold? You remember that? The top was plated with gold and then the cherubims. So they thought that the whole foundation was, you know, laid with gold. So they start digging up all these stones to fulfill the prophecy of Jesus in Matthew 24 when he told the disciples, No stone shall be left standing that you see upon this temple. That, that prophecy was fulfilled when the Roman soldiers came in. After they destroyed everything, they started digging out the foundation because they were thinking that it was laid with gold. Is that okay? Alright. So, that have nothing to do with the Antichrist, like I said, as we have commonly been told, that we're coming to form an alliance with any Jewish nation. No, because that's what we're told. That uh, the Antichrist will come before he kind of covenant with the Jewish people, and then after three years, he's going to offer um, what they call um, pigs in the temple, which is an abomination to the Jewish people because the law said you must not eat pig and so on and so forth. Furthermore, the rapture is believed this will enable Christians to escape tribulation by causing such things as cut up, transformed. Are translated now when they use this word get it right they believe or we believe because if we are Christians we believe that the rapture will enable Christians to escape the tribulation are you getting what I'm talking about very good so that's why we look at the issue of pre-tribulationists the rapture will enable Christians to escape the tribulation. And so we use such terms like caught up, transformed, and translated. These are the three terms we use, basically. We'll be translated, or be caught up, or be transformed. Is that okay? All of them is to escape the tribulation. But the truth again is this. None of these processes makes us to escape tribulation. Never. It's not the end of the world. Even Revelation 1, the Bible spoke about John, he's a brother with us in the tribulation and in the kingdom. Is that okay? Praise the living God. Scripture talks about true more tribulation, shall you do what? Inherit. Bible never said you're going to escape tribulation. It didn't say so. Praise the Lord. Okay, now. So again, we look at these words. These three words like... Caught up, transformed, or may translated or transformed as the case may be. Uh, none of them have anything to do with that. But the point is this. All of these three terms are actually meant for us to escape the death in Adam. They are all directly connected to redemption. Not rapture. And I want you to get it right. Nothing to do with rapture. Praise the living God. 
Like what we're going to see much later, First Thessalonians four seventeen, it's a spiritual experience when the Bible uses the word being caught up. Amen. We are moved into a new consciousness. If I may use the word to escape from all our carnal mindedness, which is that, like we find in Romans chapter eight verse six, to be carnally minded is what is that. That's what it means. So all this transformation or this caught up experience is something that takes us away. From our old life. That we become partakers. Of the divine nature of God. Praise the living God. And so you look at Peter. Second Peter 1 verse 4. It talks about we escaping. From the corruption that is in the world through us. That's what it means. So when you use those words. Like caught up. Transformed. Translated. You know. We just escaping the corruption that is in the world. Through us. As we put on the divine nature of God. Amen. Alright, so again, with that, the Bible refers to this, that we are fled unto refuge. You know, like you find in Hebrew chapter 6 verse 18, we fled into refuge to escape. You know, the refuge, city of refuge, we are supposed to be cities that God ordained for Israel, that if you commit a crime, you run into those cities, you are saved. That's what they call cities of refuge. Now for us as Christians, we go into the most holy place, like you find in Hebrews 6 verse 18, and then we escape. That by two immutable are things, praise the living God. What did I say? Hebrews 6 18, okay. You can just read it. Is that okay? So by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation. We have fled for refuge, so lay hold upon the hope said before us. We fled for refuge. We escaped from the world into his presence. Is that okay? Come on, are you there? Alright. Okay. And this actually speaks about we becoming sons of God. We fled from the world. We escaped from the world. We escaped from the corruption that's in the world. And we become sons of God. As we put on the divine nature of God. Now we find that Enoch was translated according to the scriptures. That you may not see that. Is that okay? Hebrews 11, uh, I think verse 15. Uh, yes. Hebrews 11 verse 15. And, and truly if they have become mindful, as the case may be, you find that they will have returned. The Bible says that. But verse 13 tells us something very precisely. Again, if you look at all of these pictures of those in the Hebrews of faith, there is something I want you to note very precisely. Uh, the room is not there to discuss all of that fully today. But the truth is this. Enoch was not taken to heaven. And that may shock you. How do I know that? Diligent reading will show you this. Let's look at Hebrews 11 verse 13. Praise the Lord. Very good. These all. Who are they all? Heroes of faith, including Enoch. These all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims were on the earth. Praise the Lord. Did you get that? These all, Sarah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you understand what I'm talking about? Enoch, 
These all died. That's what the Bible says. Not having received the promise. So Enoch was not taken to heaven. And there's no room to discuss that tonight. Is that okay? And some other time I'll find time to discuss that with you. In relation to even the wild wind that took Elijah. Elijah was not taken to heaven. There's a scripture I can use to prove that to you. Let's look at it before we move on. John 3 verse 13. John 3 verse 13. Praise the Lord. John 3 13, the Bible says, And no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. No man. Now remember, all that we're talking about, Elijah, all that we're talking about, Enoch, they all happened before Jesus was born. Am I correct? And we believe that Jesus came from heaven. Am I right? Very good. Now he came from heaven and he's telling you that nobody's there. I just came from there. Who are you going to believe? You see, like I said, let's make progress tonight. I will be able to explain to you what Jesus meant here. Where he said, no man has ascended up to heaven. But just, I just need to let you have that to get you thinking. When you think that Elijah was taken to heaven, Enoch was taken to heaven, the Bible never says so. <laughs> Glory to God. I'm sure I'm not destroying anybody's theology tonight. Come with me. Now, other confused believers of this rapture teaching are the three different groups. Again, you find within the rapture circle. And these groups, they're called the secret pre-tribulation rapture doctrine. Luckily, the first categories of this belief, this one are called the secret pre-tribulation rapture believers. Another set. Within the same categories of those who believe in the rapture. Let's ask for this question. Where do you belong to in all of this? Is it pre-tribulation or pro-tribulation? But then we also have the secret pre-tribulation rapture teaching. Now here's what it said. The mid-tribulation rapture. That's another section. And then you have the B part. Within this category, the split rapture. The split rapture. No room to begin to explain all of that. For those of us who believe in the rapture, there's a point for you to go back and start making research about what you believe. Then the C on the secret rapture is the partial rapture. Is that okay? These are three categories from the secret pre-tribulation rapture. You see how expanded all of this belief is right now. On one belief, different categories of people believing the same thing. Now you tell me, who is going to make it? Is it the secret rapturist? Or the pro-rapture or the pre-rapturist? Who is going to make it? Okay. Now, these groups, as a matter of fact, are more damaging and dangerous than the previous one. I mean, the secret rapture people, they are more dangerous than the previous one because of the way they believe and the things they teach. These partial and split believers, they believe that the rapture of the saint is based upon merit and not upon the finished work of Christ by faith. And this belief is very strange. It's an invention by these people. Completely out of the mind that the purpose is of God and his word. 
The whole belief is based on the parable of the ten virgin. The secret rapture. You believe on the ten virgin. Is that okay? Right. Now, to them the ten virgin in this view, the ten virgin they are all Christians, where the lamb scream out the falls. Then, to them the five foolish will not go through the rapture because they have no oil. To them, the oil is a qualifying factor that enables them to get into the rapture. While the ten virgin can be seen in the true sense of being all Christians, the truth remains that these ten virgins correspond to what we call the parable of the wheat and tares. They are all the same people. Praise the living God. Amen. So what we're looking at here, they all appear to be Christians in their act, making it very difficult to differentiate the fake from the genuine one. That's the task that only Christ definitely can resolve. It is difficult for you to say who is a genuine Christian and who is not a genuine Christian. That is the truth. Because you find that just like we have wheat and tares, it's something that you also did embodied. But only Christ is separating the wheat from the tides. Is that okay? Alright. Now the point here is this. If there had to be any rapture going by that doctrine of the ten virgin, just like the resurrection is supposed to be, all should be seen as part of the finished work of Christ on the cross. As the resurrection has always been considered. The resurrection that is connected to the finished work of Christ. Am I correct? Very good. So if there have to be any rapture at all, it must be directly connected to what? To the finished work of Christ. It has nothing to do with what you do or what you don't do. We've got to understand that. Praise the living God. Amen. The Bible promise of escape from temptation, but not escape from the devil, but from temptation. You find that in First Corinthians 10 and verse 13. The promise of escape from temptation. That's the promise the Lord gave to us. There have been no temptation taking the such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above you are able to. But with, with the same temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to do what? To be it. You escape from temptation, but you are not going to escape through the rapture. The Bible didn't teach that. Is that okay? John 17, 15. This is what Jesus said. John 17, 15. I pray not that thou should take them out of the world, but that thou should keep them from the evil one. He didn't say escape from the devil. He didn't say escape from any tribulation. He said, God preserve them in this world from the evil one. This is the promise of God. Praise the living God. And so, when we come to, for instance, 1st Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 to 17, which is supposed to be the main text we're dealing with, it's not dealing with the rapture either, but rather the issue of resurrection. We, we, we said that extensively in the previous studies. Is that okay? He's not talking about rapture, but I'm going to take time to break down a few 
uh, of these verses as we get to the end. But this passage is not dealing with rapture, it's dealing with resurrection. From 13 to 17, is dealing with resurrection. If you can put it on the board, I'll show you something. The last verse, which is verse 18. Uh, okay, 1 Thessalonians. Before we deal with it fully, let's look at the 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Give me verse 13, and then we'll look at verse 18 only. But I will not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. And I mean, if you understand what it means to be asleep. Those who have died. That is sorrow not, even as all that which have what? No hope. What hope? He's not talking about hope of rapture. Hope of resurrection. Is that okay? Then go to the last verse. Verse 18. What did he say? After all said and done, he said, Wherefore comfort one another with these words. What was happening? These people were sorrowing because some of the members of the church died through persecution. And they were so much in pains. And Paul was hard to encourage them. Don't be in sorrow like unbelievers that have no hope of resurrection. That's what he was teaching them. And so when he said comfort one another, strengthen them. That there is hope for them. That even those of us who are alive, we have no advantage over those who have died. We are going to find ourselves in Christ. That's what he was teaching them. He wasn't talking about rapture. Praise God. Okay. By the way, let's think a little bit about the origin of this doctrine. How did they come into the church? Now it may surprise us to hear this. That the whole of this deception. I'm going to be bold to say that. Was not taught by the early Christians. And early Christian fathers. Not even by the apostles. It was actually originated by three men. The first man was John Nelson Derby. He founded the Plymouth Brethren Movement. Who started teaching it in about 1828 AD in England. Who got some of his ideas from a Catholic monk named Manuel de la Cusa. Who published his first ideas in 1750 AD. And I'm going to make you see why this man published that thesis. In 1780. So when John Darby got hold of that material, he studied it. He began to imbibe the idea. And then he was teaching it to his brethren in England. In around 1828 AD. You know, because they were kind of spiritual people. It was like a spiritual movement. They were called the Plymouth Brethren. Right? Okay. Then, in 1830, that is almost about some eight years thereafter, or let's say the other one was about 1828, about two years thereafter, in England again, a 15-year-old little girl called Margaret MacDonald said she had a revelation in which the church was taken away into the air before the great tribulation. Therefore, to David and the rest, this was a confirmation of what they've been studying over time. So to them, this girl have confirmed what they are saying. This is a good revelation, 1830, that the church is going to be raptured, they're only going to pass through the great tribulation. So David just got hold of that. Then, the third man that came into this picture here was Dr. Scofield. 
Dr. Scofield, some of you have read the Bible, Scofield Bible. They call it the Scofield Reference Bible. I'm going to say one or two things about this man. He awarded himself a doctorate degree. You never, never studied to the point of being awarded. He awarded himself a doctorate degree, this man. Right? And I'm going to give you some background to how he came to write what he wrote. And the reason he did what he did. Now, Dr. Scofield got this new revelation from Derby when he visited the United States in 1862 and introduced this teaching in the footnotes of his Bible, the Scofield Reference Bible. Now, Dr. Scofield, like I said, was a man of a very dubious character who awarded himself a doctorate degree without any higher education. In the early 1900s, Scofield was backed financially by a Jewish lawyer named Samuel Utemia who was one of the farmers of the Federal Reserve Act and was the president of the Occult Lotus Club in New York. Utemia provided Scofield with free housing for about 20 years while he wrote his note for the Scofield Bible. His motive was undoubtedly very political, laying the groundwork to convince Christians to blindly support the Jewish state which was already being planned by certain powerful Jewish Zionists. Their motive was anything but what? Christian. It was a political idea. So the man that actually propagated the Scofield, I mean, the doctrine in the Scofield Bible was not, he never obtained to any higher education in the first place. He awarded himself a doctorate degree. And then he was housed by this Omitaya for 20 good years while he was preparing the note to be able to come out with the Scofield Bible and to be able to get people deceived. And all that he was working out is to ensure that the Zionist movement was fully supported about what was going to happen in the Jewish states that they were planning to form. This what took place.